Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Two goldfish are in a tank. One of them looks at the other and says, you know how to drive this thing? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from David Litt, former Obama speechwriter and now author. Mm-hmm. Later, he'll tell us what not to do with the leader of the free world's ferns. Uh-huh. Plus, we speak with multi-Oscar-nominated actor Willem Dafoe about his acclaimed performance in the new film, The Florida Project. Also coming up, Carla Hall, host of The Chew, says the secret to good cornbread is lots of corn and lots of fat. Duh. Yes. Rachel Bloom, star and creator of the TV musical Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, leads us in a sing-along. And I chat with synth rock fans' own personal Jizai, the band Depeche Mode. Do not enjoy the silence. Mm. Instead, listen to Small Talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Yankees are heading to the American League Championship Series. Reporter Ronan Farrow talked to more than a dozen women who say Weinstein harassed or assaulted them. President Trump to issue an executive order that he says will inject more competition into health insurance markets. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Greta Johnson. She is co-host of the wonderful podcast Nerdette where they talk about nerdy things. Greta, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I Well, I don't really go to parties, for the record, but if I were to go uh, to a party... Maybe we should find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend this Smithsonian article. I'm just going to read you the headline, and that will do the job for you. Ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. There never were 57 varieties of Heinz ketchup. What? Yeah, man. You know, Heinz ketchup, they say like 57 varieties on the label, but it turns out there never were 57 varieties. How is that possible? So it turns out the guy who invented Heinz ketchup was inspired by this other shoe advertising group that said they had 21 styles of shoes. And he was like, oh, maybe I should say we have a bunch of varieties too. And he chose the number 57 because the number five was his lucky number and seven was his wife's lucky number. And then it was just like super lucky from there, apparently. It's just a lie. (laughs) So what, I mean, now that we know this, are they going to walk it back? Are they just going to call it Heinz Varieties? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't have the answer for you. But look, there's still a role for 57. This is the most news you can ever use you'll get from the DPD. If you hit the 57 with your hand, that's how the ketchup comes out. Yeah, that's true. What? Yep. Really? That's how the ketchup comes wow. out. You just whack it with your palm. Yeah, the raised so, number 57 on the bottle, that's where you hit it. It oh serves a purpose. So, so you guys can take this fun story out on the weekend, and I will use the ketchup knowledge for myself on the weekend. Enjoy it. We all win. There you go. Take <laughs> it out on the bottle. Uh, Greta, <laughs> thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for some music. Yes, this is what we call the Dinner Party Soundtrack, in which a fine musician DJs your next get-together. Mackenzie Scott released her first album under the moniker Torres when she was still in college. Her personal lyrics and raw vocals continue to earn her critical acclaim, and she's just released her third album of emotional electronica called Three Futures. Here's Torres to spin a playlist that works for a casual get-together, or, you know, something sexier. Yikes. Hi, this is Torres, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. The first song that I've chosen is Baby by Gal Costa. I think it's really enchanting and dreamy and a little bit cheesy in in all the right ways. (laughs) 
It's so simple, really, but she just sings th this chorus. It's just... You know, it's just, it's, it's one word, but to me, if you can repeat one melody or one lyric over and over again with enough intention behind it to make somebody believe you, then I think that you're really onto something. When I attend any sort of a social gathering, I like when the mood starts sweeter, a little, you know, a little silly just to make people comfortable, I think is really important before they've had a glass of wine or whatever it is. Um, personally, I, I'm a bit socially awkward and, until I feel comfortable and then I, I can get into the groove pretty well. The Portishead song, Strangers, is um, like so much of their other songs, dark and trance-like. I love a song that feels like it could hypnotize. It has this relentless beat. And it goes throughout the whole song, apart from the moments where it breathes and it makes you think that it's done, and then it drops again, and it's fantastic. And Beth Gibbons, you know, she has many iterations of her voice, but you always know that it's her. I think that's amazing that she still managed to be so singular. This one, it's slinky, kind of kinky. <laughs> it gives the impression that it could end up being a, an orgy if someone were to suggest it. <laughs> you know, how about halfway through the dinner party is about where that vibe should come into play. As I'm preparing the main course, I would begin a song called Catwalk by John Coltrane. At this point, people are really feeling loosened up. They're laughing, they're ready for the main course. I would probably be making oven-roasted salmon. I love fish, but I don't like overcooked fish. I think that's the worst. I don't respect people who overcook fish. <laughs> I'll broil it, and the top has that sort of crunchy, caramelized texture to it, which is the best. Oh my god, I'm salivating. <laughs> This song, Catwalk, has this one line that repeats throughout the song. Oh, it's majestic. I mean, it totally hits the spot, and it repeats the way that you want it to, which is super satisfying for me. Like, 
you know, when I actually hear a melody that I love and then it doesn't repeat, it drives me crazy. And it actually culminates in a really strong finish with that melody at the end. My final song, this one is from my new record. There's a song called Bad Baby Pie, which I thought would be an appropriate selection. My intention was that listeners would not really know whether I was talking about a, a dinner, perhaps, or something else. I heard you reserved a silver table where you planned to cut me loose. I do not feel that up until this point I've really written anything that felt celebratory, though I may not understand much. I, in fact, I feel like I understand less the older I get. There's that craziness that tells me that it's still so important to celebrate life and to celebrate the space that I've been given on this planet. It won't be mine for long. A dinner party soundtrack from Torres. Her new album is called Three Futures. At present, she's on tour. Ah, all right. Coming up, Carla Hall, chef and co-host of TV's The Chew, remembers the best cornbread ever. Synth rock pioneers Depeche Mode adhere to their policy of truth while fielding our questions. And Willem Dafoe says working with a great director is a lot like working with Dr. Frankenstein. You start to become their creature. Just in time for Halloween, Mm. when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, an hour of all that is excellent in culture this week. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, the members of Depeche Mode trace their careers from synth poppers to revolution rockers. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, that would be actor Willem Dafoe. He's lit up the big screen for three decades, from his Oscar-nominated performance in Platoon, mm-hmm. to playing Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ, to great character roles in Wild at Heart and the Grand Budapest Hotel. His latest is The Florida Project, directed by Sean Baker. The story centers around a young girl and her single mom who live in a budget motel in Orlando in the shadow of Disney World. Defoe plays the manager of the motel and acts as landlord, parent, and sheriff to its residents. Here he is paying a visit to the movie's mom and daughter duo. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. Do not guilty, okay? That's good. Do you hear what I just said? I got it. I'm going to talk to her. Captain Skin, you're out of here. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my idea. And, and water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Moni. You've disgraced me. Hiley. Yeah, Mom, you're a disgrace. The movie was shot at a real budget motel in Orlando while it was still open for business. When I met with Willem, I asked what that was like. Sometimes I would tell the real manager to move over so I'd get in his place because we were filming. They'd step out, and then <laughs> after we finished that scene... They'd go back in and continue their job. What a weird it environment. Was, uh, yeah, no, but it's it's very it's very rich because you you always have that touchstone of the real life going on, and also 
the people keep you honest. You know, you don't think about acting. You don't think about showbiz. You don't think about who's going to see the movie. You're, you're having this encounter and you're acting out these scenarios. So it's, it's very rich and very inspiring. It sounds like a, it's a verite experience. You're living it and then you're just stepping into the role of the characters that are already there. A little bit, a little bit. And that's, of course, that's a dream for an actor. You still pretend, you still submit to scenarios and you still invent things, but you're guided so much by so much around you. You know, I, I always feel like the best directors, it's not what people think. It's not about emotions. It's about, you know, or saying this has to happen. Or It's more about creating a world that's so complete that when you enter it, there's a logic and a clarity that is, mm. is natural. You're acting natural because there's, A follows B. You don't, you don't feel the strain of creating your, your, letting things happen. Also, in this movie, you were acting with people who'd never acted before. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, how did you react when you found out that would be the case? I, I, you know what? I like to pretend I never acted before. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah? <laughs> I, I encourage it. I want to learn how to not be an actor. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> the best performing and the performers I admire the most you know, disappear. They become part of the fabric of what's going mm. on. That's why I've always, I've always loved non-professional um, yeah. performances. And I love watching films from other culture where I don't know sometimes whether the person is well-regarded, whether they're a famous actor, whether they've made many films, whether this is their first film. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. You know, so much of performing on film, because it can be framed and it can be edited has to do with presence commitment to being there and letting things happen and while it's nice to have the craft of an actor that can get in the way sometimes because then you're so result oriented or you're so in control mm. that you close out accidents sometimes and with people that don't have a craft sometimes things occur naturally and if you're present enough to receive it, then they have a different kind mm. of truth. They don't have the same kind of manufactured truth that you have when, um, you know, you're building something. What you miss in refinement sometimes, you gain in spirit and accident and uh, hopefully humanity. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I try to tell people in my personal life, but um, it doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. But um, this is your first movie with Sean. You're known for... Hopefully, hopefully not my last. Well, yeah. Once I, once I have a good experience, sometimes I'd like to come I've, back. I've noticed that. You know, you've shot a number of films with Lars von Trier and yeah. Paul Schrader, Wes Anderson, among others. Abel. Yeah, Abel, Abel Ferrara. Ferrara. Uh, what is it that you look for in a collaboration with a director? I, I love it when you start to know, you know, you, you start to become their creature. They want to make something, but they can't do it because they've got to watch it. They've got to frame it. Mm -hmm. And they can tell you in various ways what they're interested in making. It's not always what they end up making, but they can tell you your intention and you help them to realize mm. it. That's when an actor becomes you know, a creative artist and not just an interpreter. And you're also working from a place that takes you out of your impulses and you're entertaining someone else's. 
And if you believe in that person, it can be a, a learning thing that gives you a special energy. That and the combination of submitting to them and agreeing to be their creature is a great freedom and power. And I like that. I find it interesting, though, that you don't just work with auteurs. You also are in blockbuster comic book movies like Spider-Man. Later this year, you're going to appear in Justice League. And after that, Aquaman. Do you get like the cultural equivalent of the bends going back and forth between these sorts of films? I suppose I do, but I like it. <laughs> how, how, how can you appreciate being well if you don't get sick every once in a while? <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Maybe they each enhance the other. No, they do. You know, they, it's really important not to get stuck. And everybody's got their strategy about how not to get stuck. But I just don't want to be in a job. Mm. I, I, I want to always be excited by what I do. And the only way I can do that is trick myself into... <laughs> And making it feel like the first time every time, you know? And part of that trick is to always change the situation because your job is always different. Even if you're working in the same kind of film, your job would always be different because sometimes the audience sees the story through you. Sometimes you are the story. Sometimes there's a transformation. Sometimes you're supporting. Sometimes you're candy. Sometimes you're meat, you know? It, <laughs> it, it's always changing. But so that the interview experience isn't boring, I, we have these kind of standard questions we ask. Uh-oh. One is just simply, <laughs> what, what question do you not like being asked? What, what question are you bored of? Oh, God. The, uh, I, I, you know, I, I get crazy when people say, you play bad guys all the time. Mm-hmm. Questions involving that. Because what that tells me is what kind of movies they see. You know, I can't be upset if someone doesn't know the body of my work. But, you know, I, I don't experience it that way. It also telegraphs kind of a shallow kind of research because that was maybe a label that came early with a few perform- key performances of yours. Maybe. In my world, they're the villains of that interview. <laughs> okay, good. So to not do that, I'll, our second and our last question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be a fact about you that you uh-huh. don't share in interviews, or it could just be an interesting piece of information about the world. Ah, God, what a great opportunity. Something about the world. That's a great opportunity, but I can't get that together. Something that I haven't told anybody. I was very, very late getting toilet trained. Really? Is this true? <laughs> or are you acting? No, no, no. <laughs> you asked for it. You got it. Okay. Like in your 20s? or like <laughs> The boom it? man here that's recording this is blushing on my behalf. <laughs> and the publicist probably has fainted. <laughs> Not very elegant, but you know what? It's true. Willem Dafoe, his new film is called The Florida Project. It's out now. And people, you might rightly wonder if potty training is appropriate conversation (laughs) for a dinner party. Well, you'll find the answer to that and many other party-related questions in our forthcoming book. We really do address that. Yeah. The book is called Brunch is Hell, and it's both a how-to guide to hosting a dinner party and a kind of unhinged rant against the dinner party's evil antithesis, brunch. Also, it's a heartfelt plea for people to dine together and actually listen to each other. Pre-order it now on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And now, on to the second most essential part of a dinner party, the food. The first being wine. Of course. Now, normally, this is where we'd interview someone about food, but today, we're going to do something a little different. That's right. We're calling this segment Family Dish, 
wherein a notable chef or food expert will share their memories of a cherished family recipe, at which points our mouths will water uncontrollably. That's true. And then we will procure said recipe and post it at dinnerpartydownload.org. And for this inaugural edition, our guest is Carla Hall. Yeah. She was a fan-favorite contestant on TV's Top Chef, and now she's co-host of ABC's daytime talk show, The Chew. Here she is, remembering a staple of her Southern Sunday suppers. My name is Carla Hall, and I'm a co-host on ABC's The Chew. And the dish that I'm going to be talking about is my grandmother's cornbread. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and my grandmother lived in Lebanon, Tennessee. And so it was 30 miles from where we went to church to Granny's house. I always asked my mom, can we stop to call Granny so that she can start making the cornbread so that when we get there... It would be ready. But Granny would never make the cornbread until she saw the whites of our eyes and we were on the inside of the door. And then as soon as we got in the door, I'm like, Granny, are you going to make the cornbread? We're here. And my grandmother would have the pan in the oven with a little bit of oil just waiting for us. Up north, cornbread is a little cakier, and it's sweeter. It's almost like a corn muffin, whereas in the south, the cornbread serves as a means of sopping up the things that are on your plate. It's a very savory dish. My grandmother would call cornbread that she would make egg bread. She didn't use flour. It was all cornmeal, and it tasted like corn. So her cornbread was really light, honestly, because of all the fat and the eggs and the milk that was in it. But I think that's what made Granny's cornbread really special. That coffee can that would be on her stove that would hold all of the fat, the bacon fat, the ham fat. And that pan that she had in the oven would be getting hot. And then she would pour this batter into that hot pan and it would sort of curl around the edges of that old cast iron skillet. And I'm just looking at this cornbread thinking, I can't wait to eat that cornbread with those crunchy edges. (gasps) So I knew that as soon as she poured that batter, I would be eating in 18 minutes. That's all I cared about. It's assumed that chefs love to cook all their lives. I did not. I was interested in eating. My observation was through the palate. So she didn't really teach me. She just loved that I appreciated her cornbread. Now, as I got older and I became interested in food, I'm looking around my family. I'm like, okay, well, who knows how to make Granny's food? And my mother wasn't interested in cooking. So a lot of the recipes from my grandmother is me sleuthing out the taste of them because I I don't necessarily have recipes that I am following. So I remember one of the first times that I made this cornbread for clients, and obviously I couldn't make it in a cast iron skillet because how big does the cast iron skillet have to be if you're going to be making cornbread for a hundred people? I'm like, okay, I obviously have to make this cornbread in a sheet pan. And when you pull that sheet pan out, all of a sudden 
it starts to buckle because I'm not using this heavy cast iron skillet. Then I was thinking, oh, Granny, help me. But that cornbread was beautifully done. Just from that experience, I've learned, regardless if it's in a cast iron skillet or if it's in a sheet pan or if I make it in muffin tins, it's still the moist, delicious cornbread that I always think about when I would have at my grandmother's house for Sunday suppers. Chef and TV personality Carla Hall, with an assist from her grandmother, you can find the step-by-step recipe for that cornbread on our website. That's dinnerpartydownload.org. He says that's dinnerpartydownload.org. Will you give me a bite? No! Delicious. Back in the early 80s, four lanky Brits calling themselves Depeche Mode, armed only with primitive synthesizers, started churning out pop hits. Nearly 40 years later, they have sold over 100 million albums and are one of the most popular live acts on earth. This week, they will become the first band ever to play four consecutive sold-out shows at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. Rico caught up with Depeche Mode's main songwriter Martin Gore and his fellow founding member Andy Fletcher. They told him the band was inspired by the pioneering German synthesizer band Kraftwerk, but according to Andy, they cut their teeth with more traditional instruments. We were actually more of a conventional band in the beginning, Only Martin had a synthesizer, and that's Mm. when these very small and cheap monophonic synthesizers were available. And Vince Clark, who was our leader at the time, made a uh, decision that we were to become all electronic. (laughs) Just a sort of blanket rule. It was like, today we become synth rockers. And in fact, up till the late 80s, I don't think we ever picked up another guitar. Yeah, I think there was one track that was a B-side or something. And then. Oh, yeah, and then you're right, that that had a bit of guitar (laughs) on it, yeah. What was your response to that? Were you excited to go down that road? Well, it was very hard for me because I'd never played a keyboard in my life. (laughs) So that was pretty tough. And and of course, the keyboards at that time were incredibly primitive. It wasn't always easy to make them work, is my understanding. Yeah, things that you take for granted these days were very, very difficult back then. Like, for instance, what? Our most, the, the most disastrous story we have, I think, was when we played in a place called Bochum in Germany mm-hmm. in about 1982, and we were using a prototype PPG synthesizer back then, and they were renowned for being not very roadworthy. <laughs> and, you know, we heard that craft work were coming to the gig. And, of course, it broke down. So for the whole set, the synth that I played just wasn't working. So it was quite disastrous and quite humiliating in front of our idols. Oh, my God. Did did you speak to them afterwards? No, they left. (laughs) (laughs) They thought, no competition. The music of your early days was, it was, if I'm all right saying so, a little more poppy, and then fairly quickly became quite dark. You began to attract fans who tended to favor a lot of black in their outfits, let us say. What prompted that tonal shift? 
I mean, I know it's actually kind of a dark political moment at that time, certainly in England. Yeah, I think more than anything else, I think it was just growing a little bit older. You know, when we were making Speak and Spell, I think we just couldn't believe our luck. We were just along for the ride with Vince. And then suddenly, you know, Vince left the band and I was kind of thrown into the hot seat. Because he was the main songwriter until he left. And then you became it. Yeah. So, you know, with Construction Time Again, which came out in 1983, I think that was the first real signs of promise, really, I suppose, that we could do something different than just churning out pop music. I'm actually very glad you bring up that album because it has my favorite Depeche Mode song on it, Everything Counts. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that song? What was the genesis of it? I think that... Um, you know, up until Spirit, Construction Time Again was the only album that was a kind of social commentary. Mm. And I think it was just down to us traveling a lot. Mm. You know, we did our first Asian tour and we saw more poverty and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, England wasn't exactly in a great place at the time, but then it kind of puts things into perspective when you travel to Thailand and mm-hmm. places like that. I think that's what influenced that album and that track in particular. This might be a good time to talk about your most recent single, called Where's the Revolution? What inspired that track? You know, I started writing songs for this album towards the end of 2015, and I just felt that the the world was in a horrible place. Humanity seemed to be losing its way. Hmm. Where's the Revolution was just was one of those tracks. It just feels like we need to be doing something. We need to be finding our way back to the path. The song almost seems to be scolding listeners for being complacent, and it's kind of begging for a popular uprising. Almost literally, that's what the chorus is. But as I was listening, it occurred to me that there is kind of a political revolution afoot, but it's in the form of populism. That's interesting. And uh, when Martin felt the world was in a bad place in 2015, I mean, a lot's happened yeah. <laughs> since then, uh, like Brexit. And I, I, don't, I don't think Martin's alluding to the revolution of populism, but uh, it has actually, it's been very good for us releasing the album now because it's... It really seems to be really now, and that's important. Obviously, this populism is not what you're calling for, but what happens? There's a revolution happening, but it's not the revolution you were hoping for. What do you do when the people rise up, but not in the way you wish? You know, I've, I've, I've thought about that, and it's um, just a shame that maybe what I was feeling back in 2015 was just a, a lot of anger and a lot of frustration by people. And unfortunately, it seems to have been misplaced and put into populism and the world is a much worse place for it. Your work has been cited as an influence by innumerable bands. Which musicians were maybe you most proud to learn you inspired? Um, One of the things that I I love about all the different people that cite us as influences is that they come from so many different genres. Hmm. If it had just been like electronic musicians saying we we were inspired by you, that would be 
fantastic, but it wouldn't be as amazing as the fact that we've inspired heavy metal people. Which? I remember seeing somewhere, I, mean, I, I swear I saw somewhere once, Anthrax. <laughs> to be honest, though, um, I think the thing Mar Martin's most proud of is the Johnny Cash version of Personal Jesus. Oh, right, Johnny Cash's cover. Martin was into Johnny Cash when you were young, weren't you? Yeah. One of my friends called me and said, I just heard Johnny Cash singing Personal Jesus on the radio. And I said, you're joking. <laughs> I, didn't, I honestly did not believe him. Did you expect, especially with a form of music that was so at the time very edgy and very novel, did you expect to still be doing it this many years later? No. I mean, when we, we, we thought we, we would last a few years. If that, when people ask us, you know, what are you most proud of in your career? What moment, you know, they want us to be like very specific about it. The thing that I'm most proud of is that we're still here 37 years later. Mm. I mean, that is amazing to me. That and the Johnny Cash. Yeah, and that, yeah, and that as well. <laughs> your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher of Depeche Mode, interpreted here by Johnny Cash, of course. Last weekend, the band was nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And for more Mode, subscribe to our podcast. There you'll find the latest episode of our bonus series, Speakeasy, wherein Martin and Andy talk about the time one of their autograph signings turned into a 20,000-kid riot. True story. Yeah. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. All right. When we return, Rachel Bloom leads us in a sing-along, and we hear about the time two drunk lovers defrauded the Smithsonian. Ah, oh, romance. Hmm. When the dinner party download continues. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, former Obama speechwriter David Litt takes us through his worst nightmare, which somehow involves ferns. Him too. Yeah. Really? But first, let's learn some manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Golden Globe winner Rachel Bloom. Here's how Rico introduced her when we met back in February. A few years back, she set the internet ablaze with a heartfelt and highly vulgar musical tribute to the you late... You can talk while he's doing this, too. It's totally okay. Oh, I can? Yeah. I'll give sound effects. Okay. Okay, that would be fun. She set the internet ablaze <sighs> with a heartfelt <laughs> and highly vulgar musical tribute to the late sci-fi author Ray Bradbury. Ooh. She also put out a couple of albums of musical comedy. Oh. And then... I didn't know that. She teamed up with Aline Brosh McKenna mm. to create Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It is a musical TV <laughs> series. It's one of the most acclaimed and binge-watched in all the land. Ooh. It stars Rachel, my sidekick here, as the irrepressible, <laughs> romantically delusional Rebecca Bunch, um. who... Well, let's let the theme song tell the story. Oh. I was working hard at a New York job, making go, but it made me blue. I was crying a lot, and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. Can you guys stop singing for just a second? She's so broken inside. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. C-R-A-Z-Y. Okay, we get it. 
Crazy <laughs> it's great that that does all the explaining for us. It yes. does Saved all the, us a lot exactly. of work. Exactly, saves you a lot of. So your character Rebecca suddenly moves across the country to stalk her ex. Um, she quits a job, high-paying job, moves to West Covina. All of which is funny, but at the same time, she's dealing with mental illness. How do you calibrate those two types of zaniness in the show? One that's amusing, and one that's born of a real desperation. There, the two have always been pretty um, together. Part and parcel. Is that the right way to use part and parcel? Yeah, sure. Two have been always been The public radio audience will correct you. There you go. Either way. Uh, The two have always been pretty part and parcel to me. With wackiness comes inherent sadness, I think, that you Mm. need that to counterbalance the wackiness. And so, I don't know. It was always kind of inherent in the show we were wanting to do because the premise is so wacky. To make it real, you have to deconstruct it and say, okay, why would a woman actually move across the country? But why make it real? It's a musical. Typically, I think of musicals as being escapist. Yeah, well, you want to have also a contrast to when the musical numbers happen. Hmm. And so there's musical numbers to escape from what you need something to escape from. Well, that's a, that's a question. When, how do you know when... There's like one or two songs per episode. How do you know when to drop a song in? The best songs come from the emotional high and low points of the episode. Hmm. It's like how you write any musical. It's like... When is the emotion too strong for the character to merely speak? Hmm. When do they need to sing? But there's also a wonderful example of a magical character that you just kind of pull out of thin air to sing songs who embodies the Santa Ana winds, which we get here in Los Angeles every now and then. Where did that come from? He becomes like a narrator for the show. Yeah, we were talking about a structure for that episode. We had a lot of different structures, and we were thinking of genres we hadn't done. We hadn't done Four Seasons Frankie Valley, and... We were talking about how, like, we, it sounds like winds. Yeah. And we were like, oh, we can have that keep coming back. And the wind, the Santa Ana winds are making everything weird. Hello there, it's me. I'm the Santa Ana winds. I cause allergies. I also make things weird. A little bit of Well, like, as we mentioned before, you came to prominence with a song called Me Ray Bradbury, which we decided qualifies you to tell people how to behave for some reason. Yeah. Are you ready for these questions? I'm so ready for it and how I'm going to. <laughs> All right. You have no idea how ill-equipped <laughs> I am to answer etiquette questions. I'm so excited. We have some idea. Our first one's from James in Austin, Texas, uh, but we actually got a number of questions on this topic. His question is, what is the appropriate level of Google stalking before slash after a first date Should it be limited to just the online profiles publicly available about the date? Should it include obsessively skimming all of their friends and LinkedIn business contacts? Here's the thing. It's all public. I think what you do when you over-Google someone is... Over-Google. Over-Google. The thing is, you don't want to be weird and be like, I Googled you. Hmm. So when they tell Hmm. you a fact about themselves, like, oh, I work here. My mom's name is this. These are my friends. I'm interested in this. You then have to fake surprise. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Which is not only hard to do... But also, you want to learn about this person in the context of a relationship, yeah. right? I mean, I think the best way to go about doing it is to have a friend Google them and just be like, you let me know Give you a dossier? if there's anything I should worry about. Hmm. Oh, so oh. they kind of they kind of uh, make sure that they're not a psychotic. Make sure they're not like psychotic. Subcontract the Googling. <laughs> you know, subcontract mm-hmm. the Googling. Because mm-hmm. you want to be safe and really also get a friend who knows you well. So it's like, hey, you're really... 
uh, into Harry Potter and the person's just like, I hate people in yeah. Harry Potter. Alan That's Rickman, I hate mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hate Alan, which is mm-hmm. like, no one should date that person. No. But it's just, that's something to point out. All right, there you go, James. Get someone else to do your dirty work. Here's something from C in Claremont, California. This is a dire situation. All these people are only using initials, which yeah. is, they're, 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 they're a little nervous. <laughs> I like to imagine that these are all movie stars. They, uh, <laughs> so C, that Charlton would be- Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston in Claremont, California, right? Uh-huh. Some of my longtime friends are getting married this spring. There's an excellent chance both me and my ex will be invited. Mm-hmm. I have a very casual email relationship with my ex, but haven't told him I have a new beau. Do I need to tell him before we both arrive at the wedding that I won't be traveling solo? Does she need to tell her ex? Uh, yeah, I'd mention it. Really? Yeah. Why? If you have sure, a you casual have to. email relationship and you're going to run into him and you're going to bring a date to the wedding, yeah, just just be like, hey, yo, um, just not to be weird, like, I'm just going to see at this wedding. I just want to let you know, like, I'm bringing my new dude. Just didn't want it to be weird when you met him. Yeah, the only it's thi- just a casual thing. Well, because the thing that concerns me is that if C is asking this, C might still have some residual feelings and is maybe being an emotional vampire when it comes to <laughs> C's ex. Ooh. And oh. so you need to own it up front. Just like, I am bringing someone. But they will be there. And I love them, not you. But oh, if oh you, my God. I, that's what I th- with all this stuff, I think if you just do it casually, where it's like you title the email, subject line, heads up, and it's like, hey... Uh, super psyched to like heads up. That's not casual. Heads up. That's pretty casual. No, you how about how about like hey wedding or wedding. Okay, maybe what I would do is honestly title it wedding fun, and then just be like, yeah, I was so psyched to see you at these weddings. Uh, just wanted to uh, give you the heads up. I am bringing a date. Just didn't want it to be weird when you met him. He's a super nice guy. Uh, he's way better in bed than you. He's just and, like so uh, much better. And yeah, I think he's the one. It's always good. Also, in case that this guy was hoping to hook up. Because you don't want him getting, you don't want a 500 days of summer type situation. Yeah, I think you go with wedding fun, see. <laughs> Just wedding, wedding fun. <laughs> wedding fun. And uh, here's one last question. This is from uh, Ben in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What is the best way to get people to burst into song? Uh, to, to start singing a song everyone knows. If you're just like, hey, what's that song, sweet Caroline? Good times never felt so good. This is working. So good. Sweet. Look, I'm going to do harmony. One of the only songs where you do horn parts when you're singing, you know? Usually you don't do the instrumentation. No. Thank you. God bless you, Neil Diamond. That's how you do it. Thank you for this subject line etiquette fun. Etiquette fun. Etiquette fun. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Bloom speaking to us back in February when the second season of her Golden Globe winning show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was airing. The third season kicks off this week. And if you have an etiquette question like, is it rude to subject the audience to impromptu karaoke in the middle of your radio show? Send it to us. It is not. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. to eavesdrop. David Litt penned some of former President Obama's most memorable speeches, including his comic turns at White House correspondence dinners. The stories behind those speeches are the stuff of his new memoir, Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. Today we overhear a tale that didn't make it into the book, maybe because it involves David stealing. I've been dating my girlfriend Jackie for a little more than three years. And we've reached the part of the relationship where we're having the flowers conversation. Uh, By that, I mean the conversation where Jackie explains I ought to do a better job of buying her flowers. 
And she says, well, it's a gesture. And I say, I don't understand the gesture because flowers are not going to even last forever. Like, I would rather have a new toaster. And then meanwhile, work is also not going great. In the Obama White House, we just launched healthcare.gov. It was more or less a disaster. The only thing that has been successful for us as a White House in the last few months has been this video, Between Two Ferns. Have you heard of the Affordable Care Act? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. That's the thing that doesn't work. Why would you get the guy that created the Zoom to make your website? President Obama sat down with Zach Galifianakis. They did this online talk show. Huge hit. Lots of people signed up for health insurance. So it's the spring of 2014. I am writing all these jokes for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The one thing we know is we have got to figure out a way to talk about Between Two Ferns. So I had this idea. At the very beginning of the speech, President Obama will ask for his aides to come out, and they'll play Hail to the Chief, and they'll each be carrying a fern, and they'll put it on either side of the podium. And I think, okay, this is going to be easy. We'll go buy some ferns. But this is early spring in Washington. It's still pretty cold. It turns out it is impossible to find a fern. And so I realize I know where to find a fern. We have the two original ferns from this incredibly popular internet video. They're in my colleague Brad Jenkins' office. And so I go to him and he says to me, well, okay, but you have to make sure to bring them back because the Smithsonian has expressed an interest in preserving them for posterity, which is not a thing I ever thought I would hear about ferns. But I promise him, these ferns are coming back. Don't worry. We will get them to the Smithsonian. I bring them out at the Washington Hilton. I go to the ballroom, and we get them all set up. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And that night, I'm up in the catwalk trying to make sure that all of our tech runs smoothly. Before I get started, uh, can we get the new presidential setup out here? I watch as President Obama delivers his line, and it's going great. (laughs) And it keeps going great until it's the second-to-last joke. George W. Bush took up painting after he left office, which inspired me to take up my own artistic side. And the president's just supposed to say a setup, and then there's a funny slide that's going to do all the work as the punchline. I'm sure we've got a shot of this. Maybe not. And the slide is totally missing. I I have this moment that comes when I realize the president of the United States is about to be humiliated, and it's going to be my fault. And if you've never experienced that before, it's not great. The joke doesn't work without the slide. (laughs) Luckily, President Obama saves me. Oh, well. Assume that it was funny. But all I want to do at that point is get out of there. I rush out of the ballroom. I call Jackie and say, am I about to get fired? And she says, no, by which she clearly means maybe. And then we go to this party. And it's this very weird moment because I am absolutely terrified that I'm about to lose my job. But at the same time, this is the Vanity Fair after party, which is like the Godzilla of the after party circuit. I mean, this is the fanciest party I have ever been to in my entire life. It's like going to a wax museum, like Robert De Niro is there. And there's Sofia Vergara and Chris Christie having a surprisingly long conversation. And the next morning, I I half open my eyes, and I have a headache, and I'm hungover, and then suddenly I realize, holy the ferns. They're currently still in the Washington Hilton. So immediately I shake Jackie awake, and I say, the ferns. 
and she doesn't even need to say anything back, and we're out the door. So we get to the hotel, and we go backstage. They're already setting up for the next conference. And I don't know what this conference is, but I can only assume it was the American Society for Fern Appreciation, because this backstage area is covered in ferns. It is like a rainforest. And the thing about ferns is that they are not like dogs, they are like penguins. You cannot tell them apart. A woman from the Hilton comes down, kind of gives us a side eye, and says, what are you doing here? And I explain in my confident White House voice that I've been working on the speech, and I forgot these ferns, and the Smithsonian wants to preserve them for posterity, and the two of us are here, ready to collect them and bring them back. What I've forgotten is I am just a hungover man with his equally hungover girlfriend, and we have crashed the ballroom of a Washington Hilton in order to take two plants away for ourselves. And she says, "Uh, don't worry, I'm going to go find my supervisor. But she says supervisor in a way that probably means security. I watch her disappear, and I take a moment, and then I look at Jackie and I say, grab a fern, let's go. She looks absolutely horrified and then determined. And then she grabs a fern. And then we try to kind of waddle quickly out of the Hilton ballroom as if this is a thing that human beings regularly do. And we realize we've done it. We've stolen two copycat ferns. And the two of us look at each other and we just start laughing in the way that you can only laugh when you and a person you love are prepared to defraud the Smithsonian Institution together. And we put the ferns in our decorative fireplace, and it feels a little bit like we've kidnapped somebody. Like every so often we take a look at the fireplace and we wonder when is the Smithsonian gonna call? But it never does. I know that I should throw them out, but I don't. Leaves fall off. It's like watching the rose in Beauty and the Beast, but not nearly as pretty. And the reason I don't throw them out isn't because I'm irresponsible. It's because I will never forget that look of surprise and then that look of determination on Jackie's face the moment before she grabbed that fern. But I will say this. No flowers I ever buy her are going to be as romantic as those two slowly dying ferns. David Litt, speechwriter for former President Obama. You will find stories like that in his new book entitled Thanks, Obama. But that story is actually not one of them. Nice. You heard the premiere just now. Congratulations, us. But please, Smithsonian (laughs) workers, direct your letters of outrage to David We are merely the messengers. Yes. And by the way, radio listeners, if you missed part of our show, particularly the part where we urged you to pre-order our forthcoming book called Brunch is Hell, head to Apple Podcasts, type in Dinner Party Download, and hit subscribe. Right after you pre-order Brunch is Hell. That's right. The episode would not be possible without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Krista Ripple, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Emerald Douglas is our intern and Jake Gorski engineered. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. 